when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah and the flood. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. This is the word of God. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Joel. For those of you who have not met me, I'm one of the pastors here at uh, WBC or Wollongong Baptist Church. As Mark's already mentioned, we'll have question time and the numbers should come up on the screen. Uh, there it is. So if you have any questions, please uh, text them in um, and I'll answer them after the sermon. Um, as Mark's also already mentioned, we're looking at this um, sermon series called The Roots of Redemption, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 12. Tonight we're looking at a big chunk of scripture, even though Genesis 6 was the only part that was written. We're looking at the flood story, or the story of Noah. If I'm honest with you, this story is not an easy story to preach about. This, these themes of judgment and salvation, in particular the judgment one, is not an easy theme for me to preach about. 
You see, on the flood story, it's not necessarily a happy story, but instead it's more a devastating story. Yet according to Jesus, it's a true story. Tonight's sermon is probably going to be more heavy than most. But my hope is, is that tonight's sermon will also be encouraging. Because although judgment is real, so is salvation. Although judgment is real, so is salvation. And so for all of these reasons, I'm going to pray before we get into the Bible. And so please bow your heads with me and pray with me. Father God, I just pray right now as we come to your word. We pray, Lord, that you may teach us tonight, that you may change us, Lord, that you may help us to walk with you. Lord, help us to praise your son, Jesus, and to trust in you, to trust in your character, to know that we are not God, but instead we're human, so we won't understand everything. But we can understand what you teach us in your word, and so as we come to it, we want to sit under it. And we just pray, Lord, that you help us to learn from it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, for a lot of us here, we actually went on a church camp at Kyra Ridge for the last two days. And just like everywhere else in Sydney or Wollongong, it's been raining. It's been raining a lot. Uh, basically, the whole camp, we just spent indoors playing board games, just going to the coffee machine and having awkward interactions. But it was great. I loved it. It was good. Um, as I was leaving the campsite, though, this afternoon, the rain just continued to like, pump down and I was just absolutely drenched. And then we got to this one section where the river sort of doesn't normally cross the road, but here it's starting to cross the road. And then all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, this is looking a bit dangerous. And then someone next to us in the car in front of us, uh, it was Jethro, I think, and then someone else from Macquarie Baptist really generously went out and was stepping through the water to see how deep it was. And it was only ankle deep, so like, okay, it should be okay. But we drove across it and I was pretty sure it was pretty safe, but at the same time, it made me a bit scared. I was like, whoa, this is a lot of water. This is a lot of rain. And I'm sure a lot of you possibly would have driven over it the same. I was a bit afraid for Rod, actually, because I knew he was after me. So I messaged him and there was no reception. He didn't message me back until like 5.30. So I'm freaking out, like we've got no senior pastor tonight. But anyway, um, he's all good. He's here. But later on, as we're driving home, we're driving towards Picton. And basically, whenever we went downhill, there's just more puddles, there's just more, like, there's just water everywhere, and I'm starting to get concerned. We're driving down Picton, and it's just, like, there's just water everywhere. I have to go on the other side of the road just so we can avoid the water. We then get to the Picton Township, and then I just see that there's just, like, the main street is flooded, and there's a fire engine, and there's a fireman there, like, trying to dig water out, and it's up to, like, his knees. And I'm like, whoa, that's the route we're supposed to go. So we turned right, we went down this car park, all of a sudden got to this intersection. Emma's, like, turn right. I'm freaking out, like I'm taking out my poor wife. I'm like, what do you mean turn right? Anyway, I'm like, what, what, where is right? Anyway, went that way, went right, um, got up the hill, got on the highway, and then everything started to be okay. But as I'm driving, I'm just feeling really tense. Like my muscles are freaking out. I just, I just want to be home, and I'm praying, God, just get us home. I'm praying for those at the campsite, get them home. Um, I think it's, I think in a good way, the weather that's occurring right now and maybe the fear that some of us experience today or maybe on the drive here, I'm not too sure, it probably wasn't that chaotic, is helpful for us as we come to this text and this story of the flood. If I'm honest with you, to be a little bit scared by wet weather is appropriate and it makes you think and unfortunately think about what would occur if it just kept on raining. It makes us think about the prospect of death and the prospect of drowning and how scary that is. Only last Sunday, a grandfather went fishing with his four-year-old um, grandson and he made the fatal mistake of leaving his grandson in the car as he unloaded the boat into the water. The boat slipped, went into the water and his grandson drowned. 
I've got a four-year-old boy, and that prospect scares me. It grieves us. The concept of death grieves us. Now, why am I reminding us of this devastating story that most of us probably would have read on the news? Well, just like the weather's appropriate, I think it's also appropriate as we come to this text that we come to it with the right emotional state. You see, unfortunately, over the years, I think the flood has been corrupted into this happy story the kids sing over and they draw like rainbows over with bunny rabbits and I know green grass, but this is a devastating story. And it's appropriate that we come to it in the right emotional state. Because you see, it's a story about judgment for many and salvation for few. It introduces us to the themes of judgment and salvation. And so tonight, we're going to look at those two themes from this passage and from this story. But to give you a heads up, I'm not, I'm not going to give you three points tonight. I'm not going to give you three points on the slides, but instead, this is the plan. What we're going to do is we're just going to dig into this story and we're just going to try and understand it, feel the weight of it. And then at the end of that, I'm just going to give us three simple questions in response. So if you have your Bibles, it'd be great to have them open with you, in particular for tonight, because we're looking at Genesis 5 to 9. Or if you have your Bible, I mean your phone up, keep it there too. And so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 5, which wasn't read out to us, because it's, it's a bit boring if you read it out, out front, it would take a little forever. But anyway, let me talk about Genesis chapter 5. So you've got it, open it up. In Genesis chapter 5, what we have here is a genealogy, and it's Seth's genealogy. Who's Seth? Seth is Adam and Eve's third son. You read about that at the end of chapter 4, there's Cain, Abel, and then Seth. What's a genealogy? Well, a genealogy is basically a family tree. And what this family tree is, a family tree from Adam to Noah. Now, unlike any other genealogies we have in the Bible, this genealogy is emphasizing death. You see, as you read it, there is a a simple pattern that occurs throughout chapter 5. You see, what happens is dudes are born, dudes have kids, and then dudes die. You see, the words, and he died, is just hammered throughout chapter 5. Until 521, where the pattern is broken. And it says this, it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more, because God took him away. You know what's interesting about chapter 5 is it basically covers about 1,500 years of human history, and there's only like two guys that's worthy to be mentioned in a good way. There's Enoch, and then there's Noah. What does it say about Noah? Well, let's see what it says about Noah. I think it's in verse 29. Noah's dad, Lamech, He says this, he says, And he named him Noah, and I said, this is Lamech, He will comfort us in labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. You see, from Genesis chapter 5, what we're going to see here is that humanity is dying, but also humanity is suffering. What we're seeing here is they want want comfort, they they want a savior, and that's why Lamech calls Noah, Noah, which means comfort or comforter, or sounds similar to that. So that's Genesis 5. We see that humanity is dying and humanity is suffering. But now have a look at Genesis chapter 6, and in particular verses 1 to 5. Because what the author is trying to teach us here is that humanity is wicked. And humanity is wicked. You see, in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, we get introduced to some mysterious characters. I'm anticipating a few questions after this, but we get introduced to the people such as the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. I'll unpack that in question time if you're interested, but what's going on here is that the author is trying to teach us that humanity is wicked. 
You see, when it actually talks about, I think it is in verse 2, it talks about the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and then they married them. You see, if you actually look in the original language in the Hebrew, what it's actually saying is that they saw the daughters of um, human, the daughters of men, sorry, were good, and then they took them. It's the exact same language that's used in reference to Adam and Eve. And so what we're seeing here is that once again, we're seeing people who are not learning from the past mistakes of their fathers. Just like Lamech didn't learn from Cain and then Cain didn't learn from Adam. What we see from the beginning of Genesis as it moves on from chapter 3 is that sin is intensifying. And that's what we see in verse 5 in particular. It summarizes this section for us. Let me read it to you. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. A few years ago, I watched the new Noah movie that has um, our man, Russell Crowe. Um, I actually really enjoyed it, not because it tells the flood story or Noah's story correctly or accurately, not at all. There's uh, some creative license in there, in particular with some angel rock dudes. It was fun. Um, but what I actually did enjoy about this movie or appreciated about it was how it illustrated some things really well. And one thing that it illustrated really well was just how wicked humanity was. If you've seen the movie, you'll see how humanity was killing one another, murdering one another, raping one another, even eating one another. On a world map, it poetically, it sort of tried to explain to you how the spread of sin as, as darkness going across the world's globe. In verses 6 to 7, we see how God feels about this rebellion. Let me read it out to you. In verse 6, or chapter 6, The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race, Whoa. Keep going. Right, we'll figure this out. Anyway, look at verse 6 again. Okay. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So he said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race as I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. A few years ago, before Emma and I had um, our boys, we lived in Newcastle, and uh, we moved up there for my work. And while I was working up there as a, a civil engineer, Emma was still doing some work in North Sydney uh, while working from home. So she would travel down to North Sydney on the train from Newcastle uh, once every fortnight. There was one evening where I was at home, and I think I was doing the dishes, and, and I had my phone on silence, and for some reason I just didn't check my phone. But meanwhile, Emma was on the train coming home from North Sydney to Newcastle. And as she was on the train, this creepy guy just kept on following her around. She moved from carriage to carriage to carriage and there was no one around and she started to get really scared and upset. She was messaging me, telling me what's going on, but I didn't receive the messages. And then she also messaged me saying, Joel, can you not pick me up in the car park like you normally do, but can you pick me up on the train platform? Once again, I, I didn't get the messages and I was waiting in the car. By God's grace... Emma got off the train, ran, off the tra ran through the station, through the platform, to the car park, got in the car with tears in her eyes and told me just to drive home. We only lived a few minutes away. And so when we got home, I was asked her what happened. She explained to me what happened. 
Let me tell you, on that night, I was filled with intense hatred towards that man and towards the fear that he put into my wife's heart. My heart was deeply troubled by the evil of this man. In verse 6, we see the wickedness of humanity and how God is deeply troubled. The, word, the Hebrew word here for greatly troubled is the Hebrew word used to convey the, the most intense form of human emotion. God was troubled. And we're told twice that God regretted making humanity. Now, so I'm clear here, when he's saying he regrets making humanity, he's not saying this because he's made some sort of cosmic mistake. But he, he regrets making this humanity because he's a God whose character demands that sin be judged and dealt with. Friends, as we read this part of Scripture, there's something we cannot skip over, and that is that God cares about our sin. He cares about my sin. You see, God is a transcendent God. He is separate from creation. He's not like that God in the Avatar movie who's a part of creation. He is separate from it, but he's not distant from his creation. God regrets. God is pained by human sin. He's a God who is fully involved in his creation. And just like how I was enraged at that man on that night on the train, so God grieves sin. God grieves and suffers you know what's interesting though is unlike you and me who suffer unintentionally by external factors beyond our control is that God suffers intentionally by choosing to enter into this world and be in a relationship with us. He chooses to grieve with us when we are sinned against and to grieve over us when we sin against him. Friend, God cares about our sin and he will judge it. In chapter 6, we get introduced to these wicked men and women. But then also we get introduced to a different man, a righteous man, a man called Noah. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. I'll read it, verses 8 to 12. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. Compared to this wicked and corrupt generation, Noah was blameless. He was righteous and he walked faithfully with God. But, but so we're clear here, Noah is not a perfect man. As we read later on in Genesis chapter 9, he ends up getting drunk and naked like an 18-year-old at school is. However, in comparison to those around him, he was a righteous man. And he had faith in God and he walked with God. In the book of Hebrews, in verse, chapter 11, verse 7, when talking about Noah, it said, By faith, he, that's Noah, condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And so what we know about Noah is he's righteous in comparison to those around him, but he's not perfect and he's a man of faith. And so for these reasons, God comes to him and in verse 13, God says to him, says, Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people. For the earth is filled with violence and because of them, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. After this, God then gives Noah the engineering plans to build this boat. It's a big boat. 
It's 140 meters long, it's 23 meters wide, 14 meters deep. This is a big boat, especially for a dude who lives in the desert. It's estimated that it wasn't until around about 1800 AD that a boat was made bigger than this ark. This is a big boat, but it's also a unique boat. Like, have you noticed that, or have you ever seen in the pictures that this boat, it doesn't have an anchor or rudder or sails or steering wheel? It's important to understand this ark was not a boat to be controlled, but it was to be a boat to be hidden. After giving Noah the blueprints in verse 17, God says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. For years, Noah and his three sons were building this ark while preaching to everyone about the oncoming judgment to come. In 2 Peter 2, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being Noah? Can you imagine pleading with your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers about the judgment that is to come, the flood that is to come? Can you imagine pleading with them just to pick up a hammer, a saw, anything? We're told no one listened to Noah. No one repented and everyone probably thought Noah was a fool. We probably would have thought Noah was a fool if we were back in his day as well. And despite this, we're told Noah walked faithfully with God and he built this ark year after year after year. In Hebrews 11, we're told that he built this ark in holy fear. I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing every time that a gray cloud came over in the sky that Noah's thinking, no, not yet. It's not time. He'll have him repented. There's more work to do. After building this ark and then gathering some food, we're told that God sent the animals to Noah. We're told that two of each kind of unclean animal and seven of the clean, pairs of the clean animals came to the boat. Once again, can you imagine this? You know, this spectacle that put Taronga Zoo to shame. And then, beginning with one drop, God sent rain. And what we're told from the text is for 40 days and 40 nights, the floodgates of heaven were opened. I'm guessing Noah's standing on the ark. I'm speculating here, but he's waiting to help people get on the ark. And no one came. And so in verse 16, we're told the Lord shut him in. And then dust turned to mud. Canyons turned to rivers. Rivers turned to oceans. And the tallest of mountains were swallowed up. Forty days, Noah and his family would have heard the deafening sound of pouring rain and possibly the sound of screaming people as I think they wept inside this ark. The waters rose and the ark rose with it, high above the earth. Then after 40 days, the rain stops and every living creature on the planet perished. The strong man drowned after swimming for days. The, bells, the, bir the birds fell from the sky out of exhaustion. And we're told everything that had the breath of life in it died. Only Noah and those with him are left in the ark. I don't know if you can see this, but there's multiple parallels here with the Noah story and the creation story. As God is decreating before he recreates. As God is allowing chaos to reign once again before he brings order to it. In many ways, it's almost like the Garden of Eden is floating in this boat. 
in many ways, all that is left of God's creation or within these four walls of this ark, or how many walls there were. Then for another 110 days, the water remained on the earth and the planet was purified. I'm guessing that this part of the story horrifies us. I'm guessing some of us are thinking, like, like how could God do this? I'm guessing some of us are thinking, like, couldn't have God been more patient? He waited 1,500 years between after Adam's sin and no one listened to Noah after, as he preached for repentance. Maybe some of you think, couldn't have God given these people a godly example? He gave them Enoch and he gave them Noah and people didn't follow them. Maybe you think, couldn't God just forgive and forget and just move on and let this be? Friends, an unjust God is not a God to, who is worthy to be worshipped or followed or believed in. Look, I don't know all of us in this room, but as, as a generalization, most of us here are in Wollongong, and as a result, most of us here haven't cried out for justice compared to other people in this world. Compared to other people who maybe have gone through horrendous things, maybe seen their daughters being raped or their, their children molested, do you think those sort of people would, would cry out to God for justice? Do you think they would believe in a God who didn't punish sin? Right now, as we, as we read this part of the story, we're meant to feel depressed. For the author of Genesis has written the narrative this way, so we feel the weight of death and judgment. That we feel the darkness of death. But then, chapter 8, verse 1, the dramatic music begins, the light beams through the darkness, the emotional gears shift from fear to hope, as in chapter 8, verse 1, that beautiful word, it says, But, but God remembered Noah. As you read the story, this is the climax of the narrative. As we see that not only is God a God of judgment, but He's a God of salvation. God remembered Noah. And He sent a wind so that the waters receded. For the next 200 days, the waters slowly started to go down. You know, by this time, I'm guessing Noah and his family desperately wanted to get off this boat. There was barely any light. You know, they would have the stench of all the animals, constant motion of swaying. And so Noah starts to send out birds as scouts to try and find dry land. Eventually, some don't return and the, bark, the boat lands on the top of a mountain. After the boat hits dry land, in chapter 8, verse 16, God says this. He says to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. I wonder if once again you can see the parallels in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Go forth and multiply. You see, Noah is meant to be the second Adam. He's meant to be a better Adam. If you were, if you were Noah at this point in time, I wonder what you would do as you got onto dry land. You know, I wonder if you'd just lie on the beach and make angel wings. Like, you know, I wonder if you'd just like turn to those with you, like, this, like your sons, if you're Noah, and be like, we did it. Like the boat, it, it lasted. You know, and like the lions didn't eat us. Like, how did that happen? I don't know what you would have done, but I know what I would not have done. And that's what Noah did. You see, what Noah did is with his exhausted body, he went and he built an altar, we're told in chapter 8. 
And then he took some of the clean animals and birds, which there were seven pairs of, if you remember, and he sacrificed them as an offering to God. After seeing so much death, like think about this, after going to so much tremendous lengths to keep these animals alive for hours with blood and carcasses all around him, Noah sacrifices these animals to God. You see, Noah understood why God wanted him to have seven pairs of the clean animals. Some, some speculate that as Noah is doing this, as he's doing these offerings before God, that he's confessing sins. That he's confessing his sins, his family's sins, humanity's sins. As he's acknowledging that he, his family, and all of humanity deserve judgment. But instead, God was gracious. In many ways, as Noah does this, he's a mediator for us. And we see this theme of godly men throughout the Old Testament and eventually to Jesus. Men who pray and ask for repent and repent on behalf of other people that ask God to forgive other people for their sins. I wonder if we do that. I wonder if we come before God and we pray for one another's sins and that he'll, he'll show grace to us, work through our lives, help us to fight sin and turn to him. God was pleased with Noah's worship he made a covenant with noah which we'll learn about next week which is basically a promise that god will never destroy humanity like this again and then after this we turn to genesis chapter 9 and noah and his family start to rebuild and repopulate the world and then once again if you know the story it takes a different tone noah plants a vineyard he gets drunk and then he gets naked and while Noah is plastered, his son Ham basically takes an Instagram photo of his naked dad and goes and shows it to his brothers. And then his brothers basically ignore him, Ham, and then go cover up their father's nakedness. Whenever I read this part in the story, I'm always like, why is it here? Like, like why did the author of Genesis put this here? Like, why don't you just leave it at 9, 17, where Noah looks like a hero? You know, where everyone is happy, where there's good people, where there's flowers, there's bunny rabbits, there's a rainbow, and Noah has his pants on. Like, why doesn't, why does he just end it there? Like, this, this part of the story is bizarre. Like, to begin with, like, I understand how Noah gets drunk, like, from drinking the wine, but how does he get naked? Like, that's a bit confusing. Maybe you can figure out how that occurred. But what I also think is really confusing is, like, it's not like Noah had a Dan Murphy's or Liquorland around back then. Like, this would have taken months of preparation. Like, how long was he thinking about this drinking session? Anyway, what is the point of this? Why add this to the story? Well, it's important that we grasp this. I think that this has been put here because of what occurred, but also it's been put here to teach us that Noah was sinful just like Adam. You see, Adam, like Adam, sorry, Noah sinned, was naked, ashamed and had his nakedness graciously covered by someone else. Adam sinned through eating in a garden. Noah sinned through drinking in a vineyard. Both men became conscious of their nakedness. Adam's knowledge alienated him from his wife, while Noah's knowledge alienated him from his own son. But on top of this, that Noah is sinful like Adam, I think the point of this story is to help us see that the flood didn't fix the problem of human sin. You see, Noah was better than Adam, yes. You know, he was a righteous man. He walked with God. He was a mediator for humanity. 
He, was a, he, he offered sacrifices to humanity. He, he was still a sinful man. He didn't fix the problem of sin. He wasn't the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. Noah wasn't able to change the wicked hearts of humanity. He wasn't able to bring the comfort that his father hoped he would. You see, he was only a type, a shadow of the perfect man to come. The perfect man who was naked on the cross. See, I wonder if you've ever thought about this. In Noah, all of mankind died, but one man lived. In Jesus, one man died so that all of mankind can live. I wonder if you can see the contrast between Jesus and Noah. Noah was a carpenter, a righteous man, a mediator for humanity who offered costly sacrifices to God. Jesus was a carpenter, a perfect man, who was a better mediator, who offered his body as the final sacrifice to God. Noah saved eight people from judgment and brought new life for a few. Jesus saved all of humanity and offers new life to everyone who believes in him. You see, Jesus is the better Noah and the better Adam. You see, that is, that is the story of the flood. It's a story about judgment and salvation. And ultimately, let me tell you, this is a story that points to Jesus. But how is this story relevant to us today? Like I said before, three questions in response. Question number one, are we aware of the greater flood to come? Are we aware of the greater flood to come? In Genesis 1 and 4, we learn that God is gracious but also just. We see that he is a just God as he judges Cain, um, Adam, and Eve. But what's incredible about this story is that in Cain, Adam, and Eve, God's judgment doesn't lead to immediate death. But here it does. And it's quite brutal. We see death for a lot of people. This is a devastating story about the brutality of God's judgment. But the reality is, is this is not the only story of God's judgment in the Scriptures. If you've read the Bible, you know that this theme occurs again and again and again. In Genesis 18, God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. In the next book, in the book of Exodus, He wipes out the Egyptian army and their firstborn sons. If we're honest, God's judgment makes us feel uncomfortable. And over the years, some Christians have tried to eliminate this awkwardness, by trying to explain that the God of the Old Testament, he's a different God to the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but the God of the New is a God of love. Church, there's so many different flaws with this thinking. This type of thinking, it misunderstands it in particular, how that a God without justice is not a loving God at all. That a God without justice is not a loving God at all. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. For in the New Testament... God is a God who judges as well. The difference is, is in the New Testament, God either judges Jesus or he judges on the cross or he judges us in hell. I know this topic of hell, once again, is not an easy topic to talk about. It's not politically correct for me to mention it. And yet our Lord Jesus mentions it more than anyone else in the Scriptures. And in Matthew 24, when we're talking about his return, he alludes to Noah and he says this. Let me read it out to you. In Matthew 24, verse 37 to 40, Jesus says this. He says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Metaphorically speaking, there's another flood that is to come. Another day of judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, on that day, some will be sent to eternal punishment and others to eternal life. Metaphorically speaking, there's another flood to come. And this is the question I've got. You know, we, need, we all need an ark to hide in. What ark are we going to run to? Church, God loves us, yes. He loves you, yes. But he will also judge you. Or his judgment will be put on Jesus. Question number one, are we aware of the greater flood? Question number two, are we ready for the greater flood? In Noah's day, God saved the world via a wooden ark that could not be steered or controlled. Today, God saves the world through Jesus, who cannot be controlled but must be submitted to and trusted in for salvation. Jesus is more impressive than some large boat. Jesus was able to absorb the floodwaters of God's judgment for sin. The only way to be ready for the coming judgment of God, for the coming flood, is to have faith in Jesus, who has taken God's judgment for you. The only way to avoid eternal punishment and inherit eternal life is through faith in Jesus, the better Noah. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, can I encourage you to do so tonight? If you're wondering, Joel, how do I, how do, I do this? Well, the walk of faith, just to be honest, it begins with a simple prayer. A prayer where you ask God to forgive you for your sins. Where you ask God to come into your life and for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Are we ready for the greater flood? Question number two. Question number three. Are we living in light of the greater flood? In Genesis 5 to 9, Enoch and Noah are described as men who walk with God. Later in the Bible, Abraham, David are described as men who walk with God. In the Bible, walking with God is a metaphor that describes us living in a relationship with God. It symbolizes how a godly person lives. It symbolizes unity and intimacy. Every Monday morning, uh, my wife Emma and I, I don't think we'll do this tomorrow, go for a walk at North Gong. And I love it. I love just going for a walk with my wife and just talking with her and doing life with her. It's a blessing. Each of us get to walk with God, though. And how great of a blessing is that? You see, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to walk beside Him and walk with Him, to be in a relationship with Him, to follow in His footsteps. And so a simple question I've got for us is, how are we going at walking with God? And how are we going at walking with God compared to Noah? Now, the, the story of the flood is not so we look at it and go, I want to be like Noah. It's meant to make us go, I want to be more like Jesus and thankful for Him. But we can still learn things from Noah and how he walked with God. And the one thing I want to point out about Noah is, you know what, there's a lot of scripture about Noah, but not once, you know, does he actually mention, I mean, say a word. Not once do we hear Noah's voice. As we read this story, we know that Noah walked with God because he listened to God. And he did what God told him to do. Church, Christians, to people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, our neighbors, those who we play sport with, do they know we walk with God not just because of our words, and our words are important, yes, but also because of our actions and our character? Are we doers of God's word or are we just listeners? You see, Noah, he walked with God when the world thought he was crazy. Noah walked with God when God asked him to do the impossible. Noah walked with God when God asked him to proclaim a message of judgment and salvation for a few. How are we going at doing the same? 
where we walk with God when our friends, co-workers and family think we're crazy. Now, so I'm clear, I know this is not easy. And let me tell you, as I'm preaching this, I'm preaching to myself. I, I, I fail at this every day. But as we're coming to a close, the thing I want to remind you of is this, is that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the better knower. That he has walked with God perfectly on our behalf so that we can walk with God imperfectly. Jesus has already walked perfectly with God. When his nation and his creation, his family thought he was crazy, when he was called to do the impossible, he walked with God by sharing the message of the gospel and he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit who's within us today. See, the story of Noah is about God's judgment for many, but salvation for a few. It's a story that introduces us to the themes of judgment and salvation. It's a story that asks us, are we aware of the greater flood to come? Are we ready for this greater flood? And are we living in light of the greater flood to come? It's a story about judgment for many and salvation for few. It's a story that points to Jesus, the better Noah, the greater ark, the man who walked perfectly with God. May we trust in him. Let me pray to close. Father God, we want to come before you knowing that like the men and women in the early days of Noah, that we fall short of the glory of God. Father, that we rebel against you and that our sin deserves judgment. But Father, we are thankful for Jesus and how your judgment is put on him at the cross so that by faith in him we may avoid your judgment, but we instead may experience the new heavens and earth that are to come. Lord, we thank you so much for your son Jesus and we pray, Lord, that you help us to have faith in him and to walk like him with you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.